I knew I should have taken that left point of Albuquerque. Keep rolling, we're gonna go until we get it right. You are the most egotistical, self-deluded person I have ever met. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty, hello, welcome back. This is Storytime. I am Gamer Dude. Thanks for finding me again. Welcome back. As always, we've got more stories. I have tons of them. We'll be doing this for a while. Today's stories are about cars. I'm a car nut. I love cars. I've loved cars from a young age. I've always been interested in cars, obsessed by cars. I've wanted to drive since as early as I can remember. And it's, I think it's a very American thing. I don't think the obsession for cars extends to other countries as much as it does America. It's a very, a very American idea. Well, the open road and freedom and it's a big country and let's go explore and this is your vehicle. You can go and do what you want. And that was the mentality that was always in my head. I remember the early Chevy ads and the early Ford ads, and it was cars driving along big highways and open roads. And there was just so much to see and so much to do. And as a youngster who wanted to get out of the house, seeing the country in my own vehicle was one of the things that was most appealing to me. And I really wanted to learn to drive. And it started for me at an early age because I got to visit my aunt when I was about 11 years old. This would be my mom's sister. And I went up to upstate New York. That's where they lived. They had a 13-acre. It wasn't really a farm. It wasn't really an estate. It was a hunk of woods. And they lived out in the woods. And they were very remote up there. And part of this property was a giant field. And they had all kinds of vehicles because in upstate New York, you need all kinds of vehicles for all kinds of weather, whether you're going through the snow or through the open fields or whatever they were doing, they needed a specific vehicle for it. And the vehicle they had for driving through their fields was an old Ford Bronco. This was a beat up old rusty yellow Ford Bronco with a four speed transmission with the gear shift on the steering column, not on the floor. This was an early Ford Bronco that has an indeterminate age because at the age of 11, I have no idea what year it was or how old it was. It was just a cool looking vehicle. And my aunt said that I could drive it. Now here I am 11 years old visiting my aunt. So I'm away from home and you know, none of the rules apply because it's, it's my aunt's house. So she was trying to make sure I had a good time. And part of the good time was putting me behind the wheel of a Ford Bronco. Oh my God. I was in my glory. Wait, wait, wait. I get to sit in the driver's seat and put my feet on the gas and actually go. Oh my God. I was in my glory. I was, I was beside myself. So we drove out. Now I didn't get to drive from the house out to the field because I had no idea. At 11 years old, I may have been five feet tall. So they, they probably had to push the seat up as far as it could go. And I, I, I don't remember having a difficult time reaching the pedals, but I'm sure that I did. But somehow I did. I reached the pedals. I reached the steering wheel. I had no idea how to use a clutch, so my aunt had to explain that to me. And my cousin was in the back. And um, he was there for moral support. He was a little older than I was. And he was a driver as well because he drove all of the vehicles on 13 acres. You had to get around, whether it was with a, a snowmobile or a four-wheeler or whatever it was. 
Uh, so he was aware, and it was his way of encouraging me to be in the back seat as I took my first jaunt in this big open field with this Ford Bronco. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat after I get out and work my way around, and I'm all nervous and all upset, and oh my God, uh, I'm excited and upset and thrilled and nervous, and uh, I was beside myself because I so wanted to do it, I so wanted to do it right, and I so wanted to just drive. It was so cool that I was going to be able to do it. I was so excited. Oh my God. So my aunt told me how to put the clutch in. For those who've never driven a manual, it's something that's a unique experience. It's not like driving an automatic where you just push the gas pedal and go. You actually have to put the clutch down and put the gear shift into first gear And then as you slowly let up with your left foot, you have to slowly push down with your right foot. So as the gear engages, you start moving the car forward. At 11 years old, this was a master class in coordination because it was not easy. Couple the fact that it's not an easy maneuver with the fact that I was beside myself with excitement. Suffice it to say we had a few, shall we say, jerky starts, but we got it going. And I was driving through the field. They had a little trail and I could drive along the trail in first gear because we hadn't gotten to the shifting part yet. But I was in first gear driving along at the frightening speed of seven miles an hour. But oh my God, I was, I was driving. It was so exciting. I was thrilled that I was driving a car at the age of 11. And every day after that, I was bugging my aunt. Can we go out and drive? Can we go out and drive? Come on, can we go out and drive? Just for a little while, can we go out and drive? We only drove a couple more times that week that I was up there. But oh my goodness, I had the bug. The bug had gotten a hold of me and it had burrowed itself into my heart and into my soul. And I wanted to drive. I needed a car. I had to drive. Oh my God, I needed to drive. I was so thrilled at the feeling of being behind the wheel and taking myself somewhere. Even though it was a giant circle on a 13-acre piece of property, it was me doing it, and I was thrilled to death at the prospect. Now, in New Jersey at that time, and to this day, you had to be 17 years old before you could get a driver's license. So I drove at the age of 11, and I had the bug at the age of 11, and I... So wanted to drive. Oh my God. Age of 12. And I I wanted to go visit my aunt just to go drive her car. Age of 13, I got to go back and visit her. And I drove a couple more times that summer. But it was only a couple more times. And then I had the period of time from the age of 13 to the age of 16 before I ever got behind the wheel of a car again. At that point, my mom had decided that it was okay to let me drive the family car up the driveway. We had a driveway 300 feet long, 300 feet. And at the end of the driveway, I I could change seats with my mom and she would let me drive the 300 feet from the end of the driveway up to the house. There was a little curve as we went up the driveway and it went uphill. So there was actual maneuvering involved. But this little 300 foot jaunt was just enough to keep my whistle wet for this kind of adventure driving my own car. Now, the year that I was 16, that's also the year that my dad decided to get a new vehicle for himself. Now, at the time, he was driving a 1970 Volkswagen Bug. If you've been in the Discord that I have, uh, there's a picture of the exact same model of car that my dad had. My dad drove cars hard. 
He didn't take care of cars as well as I've come to take care of cars. He drove cars hard. So they'd have a little rust on him and a couple of dings and a couple of dents and they would wear out. And he was not a maintenance guy as much as I became as I started working with cars. And one of the reasons I became a maintenance guy, because at the age of 16, I started working at a gas station at the end of our road. Now, part of my jobs at the gas station was learning how to do tune-ups and change tires and do brake jobs and do oil changes and work on cars in general. I ultimately learned how to put a clutch in and how to uh, drop an engine out of a car. So I learned a lot about cars during that year that I was working uh, as, a, as a mechanic apprentice, I guess is the way to put it. And I also pumped gas because in New Jersey, there is no self-service All gas has to be pumped by the gas station. So in between my working on tune-ups and oil changes at this full-service garage, I also pumped gas. I also had run of the shop, which came in handy because when my dad decided to get his new car, he decided to gift me his Volkswagen Bug. Part of the reason was he knew that I wanted a car and I was saving up my money to try to buy something. Part of it was he wasn't going to get anything for the trade-in because the car was in bad shape. It had, as I said, rusted and dented over the years that he'd been using it. And as it turns out, the front end had rusted out so badly that one of the pillars that supports the front was almost rusted all the way through. And so they weren't going to give him anything for a trade-in because the front end was about to fall off. So this was my car. My dad said, if you can get it roadworthy and get it through inspection and pay for your own insurance, you can have the car. Now, in New Jersey, and in most states, I believe, uh, you have to have insurance. And it's not cheap. It was cheaper when I was a kid than it is now, but it wasn't cheap by any stretch of the imagination, especially for a 16-year-old kid. So all of the money that I'd been saving to put towards a car, I shifted over to an insurance policy so that I could insure my own car. But then I had to figure out how to get this car on the road. So being the nerd that I am and that I was... And being the car nut that I was, I started doing research. And I discovered that the Volkswagen Bug was the same vehicle, the same, I shouldn't say the same vehicle, it's the same frame as the Carmen Ghia, which was also put out by Volkswagen. For those who know cars, the Carmen Ghia was the equivalent of a Volkswagen sports car at the time. Sports car using the term in its broadest sense because there wasn't really anything very sporty about a four-cylinder air-cooled engine in a sleek-bodied looking vehicle. It looked cool, but it was not fast. It was not sporty. It did not handle well, but it sure looked cool. But the point of the Carmen Ghia story is this. I needed a front end for the Volkswagen. Among the things that I discovered when I was researching was the front end on the Volkswagen is essentially held in place by four bolts. Now, before I get too technical, I know that this is probably, oh God, I don't want to hear about cars. What are you talking about? I'm not going to get too technical. I I don't know all of the technical things. I just know that this was the stuff that was important to me as a kid. I wanted to know how cars worked. I wanted to be able to run my car. I wanted to be able to fix my car. It was the center of my world when I was 16, 17 years old. I was just coming into my own. I was just starting to to understand that I I was going to be on my own at some point, and I wanted my own vehicle to take myself wherever I wanted to go, whenever I wanted to go there, without answering to anybody. So that's why I wanted to know how cars worked and make them work no matter what. 
So that's why I researched this Volkswagen, because this was going to be my car. I wanted to make sure it was running. So I discovered that if I wanted a new front end, yeah, sure, I could order one, but, you know, that costs, like, real money. I discovered if I could find a used car and take the front end off of that, maybe it was a junker, maybe it was a beater, maybe I could go to the junkyard and find one, but if I could take the front end off of one car and put it on my car, I could make my car work, which is exactly what my plan was. And as it turns out, there was a Carmen Ghia for sale in my town, uh, just about a half mile from the gas station that I worked at. Now, the Carmen Ghia was uh, the same year as the car that I had, so that meant the body types were different, but the body frames were the same. Essentially, if you can imagine a toy car where you would lift off one body and put on another body to make it look like a different car, that's what the Carmen Ghia and the Volkswagen Bug were. It wasn't quite that easy, as I discovered, but you could essentially just interchange the parts. So that's what my plan was. So I went to talk to the guy who had this Carmen Ghia for sale, and he was only selling it for $150, which back in the day was still a little pricey for a beat-up Carmen Ghia. And I discovered why he wanted to sell it for $150 instead of $200 or $300 or $400. The whole floor was rusted out on this car. Now, $150 was a little pricey, but it was below value for a Carmen Ghia. I was looking for something, you know, like 50 bucks to get a front end, go to the junkyard, get a, get a new front end for 50 bucks, maybe 75. So 150 bucks was a little rich, but with no floor in the car, it made sense. So I did some calculations. If I could buy the car for $150, take it to the garage where I worked at, take the front end off of it, interchange the rusted out front end, and then sell that to the junkyard for $50, I would be getting my front end for $100. And this all made sense to me. And that's what I wound up doing. Now, there's nothing quite so adventurous as hopping into a car with no floor and trying to drive it even a half a mile. But that's what I did. I got in very carefully. The car was not registered. It was not licensed. It was not insured. It was only a half mile from where I had to go so I decided at the age of six, at the age of 17, because I was 17 by this time, I decided to run the risk of driving an unregistered, unlicensed, uninsured car a half mile on the road. And there's nothing quite so nerve wracking as driving along with your feet spread as far as they can be, because there's no floor to put them on, as the road rushes underneath your seat as you're driving a half mile up the road. I felt like Fred Flintstone. If I had put my feet down, I probably could have made the car go a little faster because I could have run along as the car progressed up the highway. But we made it. We made it that half mile to the gas station. And we rolled it into the garage. So for the next three nights, we had the Carmen Ghia up on the lift after the shop closed. And we got the big tools out. And Yeah, it's not just four bolts. You have to take the fenders off and you have to have it up on the lift and you have to get the wheels off and you have to, there's more than four bolts. So it was a little more complicated than, oh yeah, four bolts, boom, boom, here we go, all done. It was a little more complicated than that. Oh yeah, there's a steering box. You have to make sure that lines up. Oh, and yeah, you have to make sure that's working too. Little details that in my rush to get the front end, I didn't necessarily research as carefully as I could have. So the one night job turned into a three night job but I made it work. My buddy and me, we got the four bolts off. We got the fenders off. We got the steering box disconnected. We got everything 
off of the Carmen Ghia. Then we had to put the bug up on the lift, do the same thing there to get the front end off of that car, and then put the used front end on the bug, and then reverse the process because we needed to get the Carmen Ghia out of the garage and put that back together so we could wheel it up to the junkyard to sell it. But we got it done. Now, I didn't have the opportunity to put a lot of people in the car all of the time. But by my senior year, I had a couple of friends that I would go places with. We would go bowling. We would go to band functions. Uh, you know, we'd go, out to, we'd go out to Burger King during study hall when we were supposed to be in study hall. So it was kind of like jamming a jar of pencils onto four wheels and going down the road when you jammed a bunch of people into that car. Uh, because when I say a bunch of people... Three was a bunch for a Volkswagen Bug. They were not the largest vehicles around, and uh, it was an adventure anytime you went anywhere. But that car got me back and forth. I also tuned that thing up to the point where in, in a 1970 Volkswagen Bug, I was getting 40 miles to the gallon on that. Unheard of at the time, but that's how, how meticulous I was with making sure that car was running mechanically soundly because it was my car. And I wanted to make sure it was running right. So that's what I did. I made sure it was running right. And it did. It got me back and forth wherever I wanted to go. And it got me out to Ohio where I went to school. Now, I loved that car. It was my first car. I enjoyed that car immensely. Uh, And I have good memories of being in that car. But going to school in Ohio, it made me realize I needed something with a little more oomph to get back and forth between New Jersey and Ohio. Yes, I could drive a four-cylinder car back and forth between New Jersey and Ohio, but boy, oh boy, that's a long trip because going up the mountains and the Poconos and a four-cylinder with all my junk in it, it was a long, slow process. Pennsylvania has, at the time, had very strict speed limits and very strict enforcement. It was 55 miles an hour all across the state. And that was fine with a Volkswagen Bug because it wasn't going to go faster than 55 miles an hour. But I had to borrow a line. I had the need for speed. I had to go a little bit faster than 55 miles an hour because as I'm driving along the highways, cars are zipping by me. I mean, they're going past me like a, like I was parked on the highway. It was ridiculous. So I realized, you know, not everybody follows the speed limit. Maybe I should find myself a bigger vehicle, not only for speed, but also also for capacity so I could take more stuff back and forth. Because when I went to school, I went to school with two suitcases. That's what I drove from New Jersey to Ohio. Two suitcases and a milk crate full of stuff. And that was my life. I had a whole lot more stuff that I wanted to take with me. So that was one of the other motivating factors that made me decide to give up that first car. So I started shopping around in Ohio, looking for another vehicle. And I came upon an ad for a 1969 Plymouth Fury II, the State Trooper edition. But the Plymouth Fury was a great monster of a car. The 69, if you Google the 1969 Plymouth Fury, you will see that it's as big as a boat. The one that I had an ad for was... Uh, a 69 four-door Plymouth Fury II with a 318 engine, which puzzled me because the State Trooper edition usually had a bigger engine in it. So it made me wonder whether they'd replace the engine or not. But I didn't think too much about it because it was a solid vehicle for the most part. And it was for sale cheap, $250. It was in decent shape. It was, 
it was okay. It had a, a, a busted headlight. It wasn't really busted. It was pointing straight out to the side. And I, I never understood how you could get one of the headlights to point to the side without hitting something. And I never got a good explanation for it. But I, I, I didn't press for details because I figured I could fix a headlight, which I did. Uh, and uh, we negotiated the price a little bit. I think I got it down to 225 And uh, I bought myself a Plymouth Fury 2. And that was my second car. I made sure that was tuned up and running and got me back and forth. And that was, oh, after driving a four-cylinder car, that was a monster. That 318 engine, oh my God, when you put the gas down on that, the roar of that car, that's a sound that most Americans, well, I should say most American young men back in the day, that rumble, that that roar that you would get when you'd start that car up and you'd rev it. And the muffler with a little rattle in the back. And it was, oh, it really made you feel it when you were starting a car like that. The Volkswagen was more of a, not the same thing. But when you started that Plymouth Fury, oh, that rumble was something. So I retired the Volkswagen. I actually sold it to a fellow classmate in Ohio who was looking for a vehicle. I sold it for $180. So I made, I made a pretty good deal on that car, which meant that the Fury only cost me $45. Win-win, right? And I had that rumble and I had the room. The trunk of that vehicle was huge. You could, you could well, I learned you could put three kegs of beer into it. Yes, we did have floor parties back in the day. And mine was the vehicle we used to go get the beer from the liquor store because I had enough room to do it. So I became the beer transporter for our floor parties. And yes, three kegs of beer fit in the back of a Plymouth Fury trunk. We learned by doing. It also was a great vehicle to go shopping with, with all of the people on the floor of my dorm. Fridays was shopping day. And I was the most popular guy because I always went shopping on Fridays at the local Kroger for two reasons. Number one, the prices were cheap, but number two, sample day. They'd have the cheese platters out. They'd have the pepperoni platters out. They had the seafood platters out. So if you went to the Kroger, you would get a free meal just from eating all the samples. And I had people lining up wanting to go to the store with me and I had room enough for five. So five people would come with me to the store and we would pack into my Plymouth Fury and we'd drive to the Kroger. We'd get our free lunch and we'd get all the groceries that we had, which usually consisted of soda and chips. And we'd pack everybody back into the vehicle and we'd drive back to the dorm. And that was our routine. And the Fury was a beautiful car for that because everybody got a chance to go. Everybody had a great time. And anytime we wanted to go somewhere, I would get the Fury and we could jam a whole bunch of people in there. What a difference from the Volkswagen Bug. I could double the capacity of the people that I could take places using the Plymouth Fury. It was such a good car. It's also the first car and the only car that I've ever been in where I actually drove 100 miles an hour. I think the statute of limitations has expired on that. We'll keep this to ourselves. There was this open stretch of interstate up in Michigan. Nobody around. And I was driving along, just exploring. And I said, you know, let's see how fast this car can go. And so I pushed the accelerator down. Got it up to 70 easy. Piece of cake. 80. 80 miles an hour. Oh, not even a quiver on that car. Got it up to 90. 
just cruising, cruising, cruising. It was awesome. And I said, okay, let's get to the hundred. We can do it. We can do it. Get to the hundred. And I pushed it. I pushed it to the hundred and oh, it was like, it was like I'd broken the sound barrier because I'd never been that fast in a car before. And I've never been that fast in a car since because it's insane. There's no reason to go 100 miles an hour in a car. But for 18-year-old me, there was. I'd never had a car that could do 100 miles an hour. If you'd have pushed the Volkswagen off of a cliff, it wouldn't have hit 100 miles an hour. But that Fury with a 318, oh, we got to 100. And it was awesome. And then I slowed it down because I was nervous that the cops were going to find me. So I immediately hit the brakes and got it back down to 55. Because I'm that kind of person. <laughs> but for a few brief seconds, a hundred miles an hour. Oh my God. It was amazing. I still remember that to this day and the charge that I was getting out of it. It was great. It was great. And I did enjoy that car, but I was driving it back and forth between Ohio and New Jersey quite a bit. And the miles were mounting up. And it was slowly wearing out. And so I decided that I was going to have to sell it. And so I started talking to my cousin, the same cousin where I learned to drive. One of my cousins up there was more into cars than the other one. The other one was on the road doing his university education thing. The other one was home, still doing his university education thing, but closer to home. So uh, I asked him for tips. And he said, well, get yourself a Volvo. A Volvo? Well... He knew cars, and I took his recommendation, but, you know, I'm in a Plymouth Fury that goes 100 miles an hour and has a lot of room, and you're recommending a Volvo? Okay. So I started looking around for a Volvo, and I, 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 I did find a Volvo. I'm still living in Ohio at the time, and I found a Volvo. This is about three years into my Ohio living experience, and somebody had a Volvo station wagon for sale. So I decided, all right. I guess I can buy the Volvo. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll take a run up to New York and have my cousin help me tune it up because he knows Volvos. I knew American cars. American cars are easy, especially the older ones. You could literally climb into the engine compartment, sit there and work on it. All you needed was a little manual, a timing light, and, and a, a, a toolbox, and you could do anything to an American car. But once you get to the, the Volvos and the Hondas and the Toyotas at the time, they were a little more complicated for me. And the, the tools were metric, and it was just a whole different world for me. But my cousin knew all this stuff. So I was going to take the Volvo up to upstate New York and work on it with him. So I made the deal for the Volvo. I had enough money because it was only, I was a specialist in the $250 car. It was only $250. Again, that probably should have been a warning uh, because when I purchased that Volvo, I noticed that there was some rust problems with it. When I popped the hood to check it out, I saw the area where the hinges hooked in were really kind of rusted out. And that's not surprising in Ohio, given the amount of snow and salt and weather that affects vehicles all the time. So this Volvo is pretty rusty, but I knew that, you know, rusty, you can put some Bondo on it and buff it out and it should be fine. So I spent my $250 of my hard-earned summer cash that I'd been working on with the intention of selling the, uh, the, the Plymouth when I had the chance. Uh, and I picked up this Volvo. And as I was driving from the place where I'd bought it 
back to the dorm that I was living at. I could park it in the dorm parking lot. I hit the entrance ramp to uh, I-75. That's the interstate that's near where I went to school. And I'm getting up to speed on the entrance ramp to 75. And I hear this crunch sound. And all of a sudden, as I'm getting up to speed, I hit about 50 miles an hour. And the hood of the vehicle suddenly lifts up and covers my windshield. The rusted hinge on the side of the, on the side of the car had given out. The latch on the front had given out, and it was like a scene from a comedy movie where the hood flips up and covers the windshield. Thank God it didn't break the windshield. It just blocked me from being able to see anything. Imagine that, driving along at 50 miles an hour and you can't see anything. It was an adventure. And right then, I should have known that I shouldn't have bought that Volvo. But I've always been of the philosophy, in for a penny, in for a pound. Let's see if we can get the Volvo going. So the first thing I did after I, <laughs> after I changed my pants was I got out of the car I was able to latch the front of the hood down. The hinge was gone, but I was able to latch the front of the hood down and drove along the interstate with my flashers on until I got to the next exit. I was able to pull into, it was a Kmart. They were still around at the time. And in the Kmart, I got a big bag of bungee cords and I hooked the bungee cords from fender to fender and from front to back so I could hold the hood down. on this vehicle so that I could drive it up to upstate New York and have my cousin help me not only get the car tuned up, but now repair the broken hood and the bad hinges. That's a whole involved story right there. But suffice it to say that the the solution for the loose hood problem was the mounting of two giant bolts, the installation of two huge wing nuts on top of these bolts, So that when we would put the hood down, we would twist the nuts and hold the hood in place with giant nuts. Oh, it worked. It just made it very, very difficult to check the oil. As you can tell, I love cars. (laughs) And I have stories. That's just the first three cars. I could go on and on with car stories. But I think you get the sense of my obsession and my appreciation for cars. I still love cars. I still have the dream cars that I want. I've always liked Corvettes. I've never owned a Corvette. They're way out of my price range and totally impractical. But the dream car that I have, and I put this up in Discord if anybody saw it, is the Starsky car. The 1975 Grand Torino. Candy apple red with that ridiculous white stripe. I love that car. If I could find one of those at a reasonable price, I would own a Starsky car. That's the car that I want as my play around, have fun, just be goofy car. That would be the dream car for me. Yeah, I think about cars to this day. I love cars. I love the freedom. I love driving. To this day, I love going places just to wander around on the roads and see what's out there. I'll take the scenic route to places. I will go visit the Corn Palace in South Dakota and the giant ball of twine. And what's that over there? The something shiny obsession that I have playing video games is a real life thing too. Because if I see an interesting an interesting street sign, an interesting scenic overlook, an interesting tourist attraction, I gotta go see, what's this? And that is what the car does for me. It opens up the world 
for me. And that's why I love driving and why I love cars. Not only does it get me places, but it gets me places in fun and interesting ways. The Starsky car would be a cool way to get places, don't you think? I do. That's why I don't have a really big place in my heart for self-driving cars. Self-driving cars. Where's the fun in that? You know, you plot in a route and it takes you where you... No, 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 no. I don't need a self-driving car. No, I need to know where I'm going. I need to be behind the wheel. I need to find out things on my own. Self-driving cars, no, you can keep them. I need the power of the car at my fingertips. I want my foot on the accelerator. I need to be in charge. I need to decide to go that way. Or let's go that way. I need to know that I'm controlling my own destiny. Even if it's just from here to the supermarket, at least I'm doing it. That's why you won't, you won't find me in a self-driving car. They will, <laughs> they will pry my steering wheel out of my cold, dead hands because I need to be driving myself wherever I'm going for the rest of my life. I don't need a self-driving car taking me on a predetermined route. That's not fun. That's not freedom. That's not me. That's why I love cars. I hope you guys hold on to your cars for as long as you can, man. That's freedom. That's how you express yourself. That's, you, that's how you go places. Don't let them talk you into these self-driving cars. Get your own car. Go out there, explore. Find the world. Experience the world, and you can do that behind the wheel. All right, guys, thanks for listening. It's always a pleasure talking to you about these things. Thank you for being part of it. I'm going to hop in my car now and get the heck out of here. I will see you next time. Take care of yourselves, and I will see you when I see you.